The scripture for today's sermon comes from Job 41, verses 1 through 11. The word of God speaks to us. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird or will you put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, the hope of man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. This is God's word to us. Well, good morning, everybody. Hey, my name is Kevin, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm happy to be with you this morning. I'm really excited to sit under this passage of God's word with you because this is maybe my favorite passage in what is arguably my favorite book in the Bible. But before we pray and dive into God's word, I just want to quickly tell you where I was and what I did last week so we can join together and pray for the church. We are committed to planting and strengthening churches here at Frontline, and we're committed and zealous about partnering with other churches. We think the Bible um, requires us and gives us opportunity to be connected to other churches as a church. And last week I was in Philadelphia for the lead pastors gathering of the Liberty Communion of Churches. The Liberty Communion of Churches is just a small network of about 10 churches, primarily in the Philadelphia metro area, but there's churches in Pennsylvania and New Jersey, and then even all the way down the eastern seaboard to Tampa, Florida. And it was an amazing time to be with those churches, to celebrate what God's doing with them, to grieve hard things they're navigating, just like we are, and to um, partner with them in the work of the gospel, to bring our greeting, our support with them, and to receive that from them as well. So each week we intercede for the church, like we do it for our leaders and for the cities and you know country we live in or whatever. I just want us to pray together for Liberty Communion of Churches. Would you guys do that with me right now? And then we'll just pray straight into this passage and get there. So Father, thank you that we are called into a family that's way bigger than we could fathom. It's way bigger than we will see this side of heaven. But we thank you for the family of churches in the Liberty Communion that you've given us the joy and the opportunity to partner with over the years. Many people at Frontline know Steve Huber who founded that communion of churches 20 years ago when he planted Liberty Church in Philadelphia. So we pray for Steve, we pray for all the lead pastors in these churches, we pray for the elders in these churches, and we pray for the members of all these churches. God, would you give them gospel boldness? Would you not let them shrink back from declaring the full counsel of who you are? Would you give their churches unity, God? Don't let them be divided over anything. Unite them in your truth. Give them endurance. God, as they have difficult decisions to make, as some are struggling with like where to even meet or gather, I pray that you help them. I pray specifically, Father, for the elders of Covenant 
church in Doylestown, Pennsylvania, this week as they have an elders retreat and big decisions to make about the next five or 10 years and how they serve church planting and a communion of churches in the, in the country. So bless them, God. And, and would you continue to deepen our partnership with other churches? It'd help us to um, celebrate your goodness in our relationship with other churches. And it's fun for me to realize that God, that even though people on the East Coast are further ahead of us time-wise, we're about to do the same thing that all the Liberty Churches have done today, which is to humble ourselves under your word and ask you to speak to us. So would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive your word, which is living and active. Change us by it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Job chapter one, verse one. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. Would have made a better children's book if his name was Buzz, but it's not a children's book. This is a real story about a real man. And we don't know exactly when Job lived, but we find out many things about Job in the first five verses of this book that bears his name. We're told that he was a righteous man, that he was blameless and upright. That doesn't mean he was sinless. To be blameless and upright and righteous means that you understand that you can't atone for your sins, that only God can atone for your sins. And you acknowledge when you sin against God and sin against others, and you ask God by his grace and by his mercy to make your sin right. Job was righteous. It also tells us that he was a lover of God and he turned away from evil. The text goes on to tell us that Job was unimaginably wealthy. In fact, many believe that this was the ancient king of Edom. Job possessed livestock and cash and property and estates and servants and staff and homes and anything you can fathom that would be considered a commodity or a resource, Job had it. Job had a good family. And we actually see in these first five verses that Job was a good dad. He'd established a culture of love and generosity and hospitality among his kids. His kids hung out together, which I know as a parent of three children, I long for the day and pray for the day that my kids would be friends and practice generosity and hospitality to others as a family unit. Job had raised kids that loved one another and welcomed others into their home. And the text tells us that Job prayed for his kids. It's a pretty amazing introduction to an amazing man. We also see in the opening verses of Job chapter one that Job gets caught up in this cosmic controversy that he has no knowledge of. Look in your Bibles if you've got one with you or your phone or maybe we'll have them on the screen behind you. Look at verses six to 12 of Job chapter one. We see in these verses that there is this courtroom in heaven in which Satan, the accuser of the saints, comes before God Almighty to present his case. And God, for whatever reason, for reasons that we don't understand, and certainly for reasons that Job never knew, God says to Satan, hey, have you considered my servant Job? There's nobody like him. Satan says, there's nobody like him because you're paying him off. 
You say that he loves you, God, but he actually doesn't love you. He loves what you give him. And if you took away all the stuff that you've given him, this one that you boast as your faithful servant would curse you to his face. In the midst of this accusation and proposal, the God of the universe, the one who is holy and righteous and infinite and majestic and glorious for reasons we know not, says to Satan, fine, take whatever you want away from him. Just don't harm his body. And in an instant, Job is swept up into a hurricane of chaos that he could have never anticipated and he most definitely lacked the context and explanation for. In, in a moment, in one afternoon, Job loses everything. The text tells us that an enemy army steals a massive quantity of his livestock and then either kills or kidnaps all the servants that were responsible for those livestock. Then a fire fell on another portion of his estate, killing his livestock there and all his servants there. Then another enemy army, the Chaldeans, stole his camel herd and murdered all his servants. And you would think in that moment, as Job is getting the news over and over again, of, hey, you lost this, and now this is gone, and now this is gone, that Job was comforting himself and saying, hey, man, at least my kids are okay. Material stuff can be replaced. Camels can be replaced. Herds can be replaced. At least I have my kids. And then another servant comes and says, some kind of natural disaster fell upon your kid's house, and all your kids who were together are dead. In a day. Just try to wrap your mind around what this man loses in the span of a couple of hours. And he hears this repeated refrain over and over and over and over again. Four times we see it in chapter one. Verse 15, verse 16, verse 17, verse 19. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Hey, Job, everything that you knew in that sector of your estate except for me is gone. Hey, Job, everything you possessed is destroyed. Hey, Job, everything that has material value you no longer possess, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And these lone survivors were in the same vantage point and perspective of Job, meaning they didn't know about the conversation that took place in heaven. They didn't have the context or the reason why this had befallen this faithful, righteous man, unlike whom there was nobody, the text tells us. Why had it befallen him in a day? And look at verse 20 of chapter one. You see a little bit of what Job was like in his response. Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head as a sign of mourning and fell on his face and worshiped God. And he said, I didn't bring anything into this world and I won't take anything out of this world. The only thing I have in this life and the next is God himself Bless him. 
And that does not end the hurricane of chaos in Job's life. That's not the end of the story, nor is it the end of the cosmic controversy that gave rise to the story. In chapter two, we see act two of Satan and God's conversation. And Satan comes back just to summarize for you and says, hey man, you're still cheating. You put a safety rope on Job. Of course he hasn't cursed your name yet. You haven't let me touch his body. And God, for reasons that we do not know, says to Satan, fine, do whatever you want to him. Just don't kill him. And this man who's lost everything, he's literally lost everything in a day, now finds himself, chapter two tells us, covered from the top of his head to the soles of his feet with sores that are itching and oozing pus. And Job, in this high state that he's in, walks out to the garbage heap, takes a broken piece of pottery, no doubt from a pot he used to own, and starts to scrape these sores off his body. You're like, man, what a dark day. Don't fear. Job's married. He has his wife. She'll come comfort him, right? If you know the story, it's wrong. Job's wife comes to him on the garbage heap and says, for real, man, why don't you just end this misery for all of us? Are you still holding on to your integrity, Job? His wife says, curse God and end this thing. Faithful, loving, truth-telling wife. But don't fear, Job's not alone. He lives in community. His community group shows up in the end of chapter two. Verse 11 to 13, his community group shows up. His friends show up. And I don't want to throw shade on his friends because though they are profoundly unhelpful, as the narrative of Job will show, they actually came with honorable intentions. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 11. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from their own place, likely a long way off. Eliphaz the Timonite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. If you guys are pregnant and looking for kids, there's names for you all around. They made an appointment together, listen, to come show him sympathy and comfort him. Say whatever you want about the execution of their desires. Their desires were honorable. They knew their friend was hurting and they said, hey, let's go be with him. And if you want to know how hideous this man that had possessed everything now looked, when they come upon Job, he was so disfigured that they didn't recognize him. And they sat down with him for a season to mourn and to weep. Now, some of you are asking yourself, why on earth are we talking about Job and his suffering? As if this heat is not oppressive enough, you have to bring this passage of darkness and doom and chaos and despair on us. Why Job in the midst of this moment now? And here's what's gonna make it even weirder for you. I chose this passage. I chose it. I have preached some weird sermons in my short time at Frontline, and you need to realize all those sermons I preach because Chad told me to preach them. Bless his name. 
People are like, man, you've drawn some short straws. I'm like, that's Chad. Thank Chad for that. But for this message, Chad said, you can preach whatever you want. I said, I want to preach this passage, Leviathan. I want to preach about Leviathan. And the email back was like, are you sure? Are you serious? Ha, ha, ha. It required a lot of extra administrative work for me. I'm like, no, I'm not kidding. I want to preach this passage. Why? And it's because I believe Job is asking a question throughout this book that almost all of us are asking ourselves all the time. Job is asking the question throughout this narrative, throughout these 42 chapters, is God trustworthy? Is he trustworthy? Now you see, Job isn't asking, does God exist? And I realize there are some of you in this room, that is the question that you're asking. Does God, is God even real? Is the Bible even true? Is this Christianity thing even real? And if that's you, hey, can I take you to lunch? Can we talk? I would love to share with you, to walk with you. And man, Frontline Church is flawed as the day is long, but you have found an amazing group of people to walk with you and help you explore the claims of Jesus. If you're asking, does God exist? Let me, let me buy your lunch. And I, I know there are some of you asking that, but most of us in this room aren't asking that. Job isn't asking about the existence of God. He's not even asking about the power of God. You might be tempted in a moment of suffering to go, God, can you even do anything about this? Can your hand even reach out and do that? Job doesn't question God's power at all. He doesn't question God's existence. He doesn't question his ability. He doesn't question his capability. In fact, he says throughout this time, hey, God, I know nobody can tell you what to do. I know you're more powerful than everyone in the universe. I know no one can hold you back. I know you don't take counsel from anyone. You are strong and you are mighty and you are in control of everything. The question Job is asking is, what kind of God runs the world this way? I want to know, Job says over and over and over again. Can I trust you, God? And I think that's the question you're asking. I know it's the question I'm asking. God, can I lean the full weight of my life on you? Can I trust you to protect me? God, when everything in my life seems like it's careening out of control, when it seems like evil is winning the day, when my life and my days are plagued with medical problems, doctor's appointments, cancer diagnoses, infertility, miscarriage, problems with school, problems with work. Some of you in the last month have watched your business fall apart or have seen it taken from you by force contentiously from another person. And in the midst of whatever it is that's stirring up chaos in your world, if you're honest, you're asking the question, hey, God, what are you doing? God, what kind of God runs the world this way? And underneath all that, you're asking, God, can I trust you? Can I tell you what I love about Job? Job asks that question out loud in front of his friends, apparently with not a lot of embarrassment. 
We ask that question in isolation, alone, in our journals, if we have the courage to give voice to it at all. Most of us are trying to drink that question out of our minds or buy that question out of our minds or busy ourselves so that question doesn't have time to occupy our thoughts. Job asks it out loud in front of his friends. And I wanted us to sit in this text because I want us to hear the answers that God gives him. More than that, I want us to encounter God the way Job encounters him. It's why I'm a pastor. It's why I'm a pastor. I want human beings to encounter God, the one true God, the living God, the one who is all-powerful and all-knowing and good. I want you to encounter God that Job encounters. And to do so, we've got to like endure some awkwardness. We've got to endure some awkwardness. I want you to, I want you to look at this weird animal that God puts in front of Job, Leviathan. And I want you to grasp what Job grasped in that encounter. But in order to do so, we, we need to understand at least briefly about the form of the book of Job. And then we need to understand why God's talking about Leviathan in the first place. So let's do that really quickly. And then we'll get to the questions that God asked Job about Leviathan. Here's something you might already realize, but it's important and critical to name. 95% of the book of Job is poetry. 95% of the book of Job is poetry. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 32, and part of chapter 42 are prose. But the rest of the book is poetry. Poetry is angular. Poetry is not linear. It's not straight. Poetry looks like this knife that you think you know what it's for and you pick it up to use it and the handle cuts you instead of the blade. Poetry is designed not for you to wrap your head around it, but for it to wrap itself around you. My, my sophomore year in college, I had never encountered poetry in my life. And I decided to take an upper level English class, not because I was an upperclassman, I was an underclassman, and not because I had upper level ability, but because I valued my abilities at an upper level. And I quickly realized they were not existing at an upper level. I'd never read poetry in my life. And I take this upper level poetry class and I get in there and I'm immediately horrified and think, I'm gonna flunk out of school. I, I cannot understand what these things are doing. So worried was I that I went and grabbed a friend of mine who was an upperclassman and who I knew had taken the class the year before. And I said, can I get all the answers from you for this romantic lit class. And he laughed and he said, sure, I'll give you all the answers from everything, but it will not help you. That's not the point. And I said, yes, yeah, so can I have your notebook now? Because <laughs> that is the point. And things continued to spiral in my love affair with poetry. And I think, I'm like, I'm gonna flunk this class. They're gonna kick me out of school. So I go to my professor and I said to him, let me explain to you my story. I'm not an upperclassman. I don't have upperclassman knowledge. I'm from Southern Oklahoma. This is the first time I've ever encountered poetry in my life. And I went to Josh Banner and got the answers from him for this class. And I still can't figure out this class. I'm gonna fail. He smiled at me. He said, Kevin, the answers aren't the point. 
poetry is about a journey, not about a formula. If you will just be patient and let the poems inhabit you, they will do your work. And then you'll realize the answers don't matter. That's what poetry is. That's what Job is. J.I. Packer says that poetry communicates not from one head to another, but from one heart to another. And the book of Job is posing this poetic question for us right in our face. Can God be trusted? But it's not something that can be distilled down where you can get a cliff notes on Job. In fact, listen to what Christopher Ashe says in his book, the introduction to his book on Job. He says, Job cannot be distilled. It's a narrative with a slow pace and long delays. Why? Because there is no instant working through grief, no quick fix to pain, no message of Job in a nutshell. Ash says to presume to just grasp Job in such a way that you could explain it succinctly would be as foolish as presuming to go to Paris for the first time in your life and lead people on tours there after you had only been there for an hour. Job is the kind of book that takes up residence in you. It's the kind of book, brothers and sisters, that I would love to see us devote our lives to praying through it, meditating on it, reading it together. So I'm not gonna give you the answers today. What I pray you get is a a glimpse into the goodness of God in the way Job got it. So let's talk about the context of why God's talking about Leviathan at all with Job. From from almost the get-go, after we see Job get up off the ground after worshiping God in verse 20 of chapter 1, Job is pretty quickly saying, hey, God, I want to sit down. I want me and you to have a meeting. Can we talk? He's saying this all over the place. I want answers, he says to God. Which, by the way, what is it about us that we presume if we just had more information, we would suffer better? That's what Job's doing. God, I want answers. I want a hearing. Job goes as far to say as, God, I want to put you in the dock and I want to interrogate you. I want you to bear witness and give testimony as to why you're handling my life the way you are. And in chapter 38, God shows up. It's the moment that Job has been anticipating and fearing at the same time. Here's what I love in God's kindness. In chapter nine, in this moment of total despair, Job says, my greatest fear is that if God showed up to meet with me, he wouldn't even listen to me anyway. And God shows up out of a whirlwind. And he said, Job, I've listened to every question that you've asked me. I've heard every cry from your mouth. Can we talk Like you asked, God shows up and speaks to Job unmediated. This isn't a burning bush. He speaks to Job directly and personally. And he says, you've got questions for me. I want to ask you some questions. And in chapter 38, he starts to ask him, hey, Job, were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? God asked him, 
Hey, Jeb, let, let, help me understand. Were you there when I set up the architectural structure to support the mountains? Job, can you help me understand? Were you there when I drew the line for the ocean and commanded the waters not to transcend that boundary? Hey, Job, were you able to ponder the extent of the cosmos? That's what he asked him in verse 18 of chapter 38. Have you comprehended the expanse of the universe? And then he moves from the foundation of the earth into things like weather. He says, Job, have you seen where I kept all the hail? Have you seen where I keep the snow? Hey, Job, have you ever explored the garage that I keep the sunrise in? He moves from the weather to like astronomy, meteorology to astronomy. In verses 31 to 32 of chapter 38, he says, hey, Job, help me understand. Did you set up the Big Dipper to look like that? Hey, Job, the constellations, did you put them in their place? And then in chapter 39, he says to Job, can I ask you some questions about animals, Job? And he asks him questions about deer and donkeys and oxen and ostriches. And the point here in the first half of chapter 39 is these would have been animals that would have been on Job's farm. And God says, can I ask you some questions about the animals on your farm? And then in chapter 40, he moves far, far, far away from Job's farm into the realm of mythic, apocalyptic, wild, undomesticated animals. In verses 15 to 24 of chapter 40, God talks about this animal behemoth. And then in the entirety, almost 34 verses of chapter one, he talks about Leviathan. The behemoth and Leviathan play key roles in the argument of Job. And there are two schools that people have in interpreting it. Some people say behemoth and Leviathan are just like normal animals that you could go to the zoo and see. Most scholars that would argue that say behemoth is like a hippopotamus and Leviathan is most likely a crocodile. There's a couple problems with that, by the way. Like, first of all, these animals described in Job 40 don't match anything that we see on the earth. Like, I've never seen a crocodile sneeze and fire come out of its nose. Furthermore, it would beg the question of like, if Job can't catch a hippopotamus or a crocodile, what does this say to him about his governance of the universe? It seems to sort of miss the point God's making which leads us to a secondary way of reading Behemoth and Leviathan. There are other scholars that believe that these are common storybook characters from the ancient Near East. And, and whatever Leviathan was, Job knew what Leviathan was because he'd already conjured Leviathan in chapter three of this book. When, when he cursed the day of his birth, so, so dark was Job's life that he says, I wish I was never born. I wish the people that helped me in my early days would be like those people that roused Leviathan, which sounds like just pure evil. And listen to how Christopher Ashe in his commentary on Job summarizes what, what I think is happening here. He says, Behemoth and Leviathan are storybook creatures, but they are also utterly real and true. It's just that their truth is conveyed to us in storybook descriptions that arouse in us a response of visceral fear. It seems that the behemoth may be the storybook embodiment of the figure of death. 
And the Leviathan in biblical imagery is the arch enemy of God, the prince of the power of evil, Satan, the God of this world, the one who holds the power of death. And in the Leviathan, we see the embodiment of beastliness, of terror, of undiluted evil. As Job suffers, his greatest and deepest fear is that the monster who attacks him is unrestrained, that the attacks will go on forever with unrelieved ferocity, and that the monster has been given a free hand, unlimited access to Job and to his life. He is afraid that there is no sovereign God who has evil on a leash, but there is. And when Job grasps that, He's filled with awe. See, after the conversation with God about behemoth and Leviathan, Job's response is to put his hands over his mouth and say, God, I have spoken of things that I did not understand. He says earlier, I I distracted from who you are with way too many words. Job says, I, I have, I've heard of you up to this point in my life with my ears, but now I've seen you. And therefore, Job says, I repent. Not because he had sinned with his body, but because he had been willing to put God in the wrong to make himself right. But, but what does this text on Leviathan do for Job? How does it bring him to that place? Like, don't let the weirdness of Leviathan overshadow the fact that God is drawing near to Job. He's speaking to him directly and personally. So let's just step in our passage for just a few minutes and listen to the questions that God poses to Job about Leviathan in verses 1 to 7 of Job 41. He says, hey, Job, can you catch Leviathan with a fish hook? You're going to take your cute little Zebco rod and reel out and snag the apex of evil? This isn't just a Loch Ness monster. This is evil personified. Job, can you, can you just catch evil? Can you make Leviathan fish for you? Can, can you turn Leviathan into your pet? And I don't want to taunt any of those of you who speak you know, goo-goo baby talk to your pets. Some of you do. Maybe you need to pray about that. But God says to Job, hey, are you going to talk baby talk? This is verse 3 of Job 41. Are you going to talk baby talk with Leviathan? you going to draw him up close? Then he says this, can you make him into a pet? Can you play with Leviathan like a bird? Which that passage didn't mean a whole lot to me until a handful of years ago when the Cauley family became the proud owners of a parakeet. For $16 at Petco, you can get this amazing little animal. Banksy is the name of our parakeet. And, and you can train a parakeet. You can train them to talk. You can train them to do tricks. They like treats. God says to, to Job, hey, you going to play with Leviathan like a parakeet? Then he says this, you going to put a leash on him and give him to your daughters? I mean, this is comical. It's dark. It's dark humor. Like you have to zoom out and go, hey, God is hilarious. The questions he's asking are hilarious. He says, hey, Job, can you buy fillets of Leviathan on pieces of styrofoam at the grocery store? Are, are, are people going to like chop him up and sell him among the merchants? This is the question he's asking. 
And Job knows the answer to every single one of these questions. The answer is no. God, but you can. No. God, but you can. See, God's questions to Job aren't rhetorical. And they're not God wagging his chin at Job or God bullying Job. They're actually God drawing near to Job and inviting Job to see what it's like off his farm. Job has labored his whole life to have control on his own estate. And God says, hey, Job, let me let you explore with me my estate. And let me invite you to see who I am. See, suffering is like this bright flashlight that's just shined up close in our eyes. And when we're in the midst of it, we cannot see anything but the brightness of the light. Suffering is isolating. It removes context from everything. Sometimes people go, well, that guy's really selfish. I'm like, of course he's selfish. He can't see anything else but his own pain. And in this moment, with the light of suffering blinding Job, God, with his questions, takes the flashlight out of Job's hands and shines it around the cosmos and says, hey, Job, can I invite you to see a bigger picture? Can I invite you to see the world through my eyes? It's fascinating because you read so many scholars kind of negatively say Job spends 40 chapters asking God all these questions and God never answers Job's questions. God gives Job exactly what he was asking for. He gives him himself. He says, Job, here I am. Look at me. Hey, Job, come, come sit close to me. Job, I ordain suffering. I ordain suffering in your life to strip everything else away so you can see me. And when you see me in this moment and ask, am I trustworthy? Look around. I mean, one of the most important lessons I've learned as a pastor, it's definitely been the hardest lesson I've learned as a pastor. Whether it's in counseling or leadership development or coaching or anything, the best thing that can ever happen for someone is for someone to come up with the answer themselves instead of me giving them the answer. Do you realize that's what God's doing here with Job? He's letting Job come up with the answer. He could have said, hey, Job, I built the earth. Hey, Job, I caused the first deer to give birth. Hey, Job, I set the boundaries for the ocean. Hey, Job, I can contain evil. In fact, hey, Job, did you know that I have evil on a leash? But instead he says, hey, Job, can you put evil on a leash? Can you serve up evil to dinner for your daughters, for your family? Job, this is what I'm doing. Here's what I love, friends. We don't have to fear Leviathan. We do not have to fear behemoth. We don't have to fear death, and we don't have to fear evil. Because the God who is trustworthy has entered our world. He, he came into our world and lived a perfect life, died an unjust death, the only human being ever to die that didn't deserve it, and the only human being to raise victoriously and eternally over death, 
conquering not just sin and not just Satan, but death itself so that we have nothing to fear. And though evil and chaos and suffering seem to rage on. And then some of you, I know this much of your story. And I'm praising God that you're like upright and walking and like still love Jesus. But you, you can have real hope because God has conquered Leviathan. Is he trustworthy? He says to Job and to you and me, look at me. Look at me. Look at who I am. Look at the operations of my character. Look at the strength of who I am. And then we can hope for the day. We can hope for the day that is a real day. When the evil, which though leashed now, will be put away forever. Because listen to this. This is Revelation chapter 12, verse 9 to 11. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, Leviathan. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Pray with me. Jesus, you, you conquered Leviathan. You conquered Leviathan. And your word tells us now that he is on a leash and he knows he is on a clock. And he doesn't do anything outside of your permission. The context that Job lacked, and you didn't explain to him. You didn't say, hey, Job, let me explain to you what happened in chapter one. You just showed him yourself. And the evil that had run roughshod over his life had only done so because you gave it permission to do so. Help us to hear that and it comfort us, not make us fall apart. God, would you take the blinding light of suffering out of our eyes for just a second and shine it around your world, your farm, your estate. Thank you that we can have hope and confidence. Thank you that we do not have to fear. Thank you that we have Job's life as a testimony of your trustworthiness. And Jesus, it's all secured and accomplished in you. So it's in your name we pray, amen.